My name is Julian Willard. And I'm Jim Mack, and this is Pineal Express, where trains of thought intersect. If you like Pineal Express, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash pinealexpress. At various levels of support, our patrons receive extra episodes of the show and other bonus content. In episode 10 of Pineal Express, we spoke with Binghamton University philosopher Eric Dietrich about consciousness, skeptic philosophy, and paradoxes. If you haven't already listened to it, we recommend you go back and listen to episode 10 before listening to this one. In this episode, we invited Eric Dietrich back to discuss his book, Excellent Beauty, The Naturalness of Religion and the Unnaturalness of the World. In the book, Dietrich argues that religious belief is widespread across the human species because it has an evolutionary origin. He also argues that religious belief is false and largely destructive in modern times. Dietrich suggests that people could satisfy their need for wonder and awe, not through religion, but rather by embracing the beautifully perplexing scientific mysteries. Dietrich calls these mysteries excellent beauties. They include consciousness, infinity, true contradictions, and quantum mechanics, among others. Uh, All right, so we'll go ahead and get started. Welcome back, Eric Dietrich, to Pineal Express. Thanks. I understand that in Excellent Beauty, you argue that religion, while once useful for human beings' evolution, is now unnecessary and destructive. You mentioned that just like how fast food is out of sync with our modern metabolic needs, religion is out of sync with our modern social needs. So why has religious belief become less useful over time? One reason. It's false. No religion is true. No religion is a correct description of the universe. So that ups the ante rather than lowering it. Here's an example. I always try to keep tabs on various religions. And uh, I tune into a lot of religious shows on television. I recently heard an extremely wealthy uh, fundamentalist Christian talk about being sick and in praying to Jesus. And he is committed, the rest of his view of Christianity commits him to the following claim, which he said explicitly, and I've heard him say this a dozen times. If you have some ailment and you pray to Jesus that it's cured, then it's cured. Period. It's over. Now, your symptoms may persist, but you're cured. (laughs) And... um, That's mind-boggling. Right, as if diseases aren't defined in terms of their symptoms. That's right. So with that kind of falsity going on and that kind of mental twisting in order to get your religion to still be palatable, the stakes are quite high. This guy is a Trump supporter. He's very right-wing, and he's extraordinarily wealthy. He must be worth close to a billion dollars. He has... Uh, his, he doesn't have just airplanes, his own airplanes. He has his own airport nice. in uh, somewhere in northeastern Texas. So since the religions are false and they require that much torsion to the mind, the costs are high. Yeah. And what happens is people are willing to harm other people by being right-wing, or they're willing to go to war with other people or fly planes into other people's buildings. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you could literally point to your God and go, that guy right there, and if you could literally pray and boom, you were healed, and boom, you had no symptoms, then religion wouldn't be the problem that it is. But of course, none of that is true. This is what makes it a huge social problem. 
Right. Yeah, you can sort of justify anything by saying, oh, well, God wants it. God God told me or God instructed me, and well, God wants it that way. And since you're sinking more and more of yourself into it because there's no actual positive feedback, you're kind of making it up. You're sinking your your your, your life into it, all your money into it, and you just cannot have it be wrong. And so if someone says, I believe something else... You have to kill them, is the short form. Yeah, yeah, or at least condemn them, or you know, yeah. whatever the case may be. Yeah. And I mean, this kind of presents somewhat of a problem because, despite the fact that it's less useful, I noticed that in Excellent Beauty, you build up upon David Sloan Wilson's theory right. that religious belief is widespread because evolution selected for more religious groups instead of less religious ones. Right. And I'm also aware that David Sloan Wilson's theory holds that successful religions practices develop in part because they're adaptive for the community that develops them. So my question then is, why should we not form new religions tailor-made to be adaptive to the current era? That would be fine. We, we could call them clubs. Uh, that would be a good idea. On David Wilson's theory, religion evolved because it knits groups together. Mm -hmm. Now, as I argue in Excellent Beauty, that's not sufficient to get a religion started. You have to play off human psychology. And one of the things that humans do very naturally because of our psychology, and also therefore because of evolution, is that we see agents everywhere. Like you need rain on your crops and it starts to rain. Somebody did that. We are very, very good at thinking in terms of somebody did this, somebody did that. That works really great in a group, but Mother Nature isn't really a mother and isn't really a person. And so she isn't somebody who does something. Nature is not somebody who does something. All this other stuff happens by probabilities and you know physical causal chains. So on Wilson's theory, you knit the group together with religion. That's how religions, that's how religions sustain themselves, and that's how religions helped humanity. But to get started, you need to borrow heavily from someone like Dan Dennett, who based his entire theory on the human psychology I just talked about. Right. The trouble is neither one can work by themselves. You have to stick them together. Mm -hmm. So we have, you know, humans looking for agents everywhere and then deifying those agents. And that knits the group together because everybody picks the same deities and we're up and running. We're good to go. Then, of course, all the problems set in because all the religions are false. Well, it's now 2019. We could have clubs and we could have important clubs, clubs that care about the environment, clubs that care about you know, whole ecosystems. We could have music clubs and we could have all, you know, motorcycle clubs, anything that helps knit the group together. And, fr and frankly, they're inevitable. Humans bond over all kinds of things. How about, you know, Giants fans, for example, right. yeah. or Yankees fans or Mets fans? You know, some of these people go... All out. There was the fan in the can of the fan of the Denver Broncos, and he wore a can, a big can, to every game. It had shoulder straps, and no one was sure if he was naked under the can. No one wanted to find out. But <laughs> but if it was twenty below and the Broncos were playing, he was there in the can, presumably without any clothes on. Yeah. But maybe he had some sort of 
shorts or something on, but you couldn't see it. The can rent from the top of his chest down to about his knees. And it didn't matter if it could be raining, snowing, hot, cold. He's there in the can. You think, that's a little extreme. But it's a club. Yeah. Yeah, so we could have... We could have all kinds of clubs. We could have national clubs, you know, the United States Science Club. By the way, I think we need such a thing. But anyway, there's all kinds of things we could use to knit humans together. And that would that's a good question. That would be a good idea. If we were deliberate about it, it might be it might be quite useful. So you mentioned that we could have secular clubs and you mentioned as in the case of the uh, Denver Broncos fan that clubs can certainly uh, foster behavioral change and knit people together Um, and yet uh, in your book Excellent Beauty you also note that it's not going to be a simple matter just to demand of people that they not become religious because there is something special about religion yes there is Um, and so I wonder if you might talk what makes religion so special as opposed to a club. It's the nature of the supernatural, right? All religions have a supernatural component. And that is a very sexy draw because, well, for example, your God can cure your illness. If you have a child that's sick, your God can cure that. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, how about the Mayans? You know, they were constantly piercing something or other, bleeding, sacrificing people. It's astonishing, the Aztecs and the Mayans. Uh, There's an article in Science about it about a year ago. I mean, they killed tens of thousands of people, one at a time or two at a time, sacrificing them to their gods. So when we sacrifice somebody from, you know, an adjoining tribe, and sometimes they were willing to be sacrificed. Um, And it's all this, this supernatural power that you think is out there. That just, that just makes this whole supernatural other very real. And it's hard to, it's hard to put your finger on it, but somehow the, it's real but supernatural at the same time. And so the universe becomes more interesting than it seems to be. And the tragedy about that is, is as I point out, the whole reason for excellent beauty was to point out that the universe is really interesting without any religion whatsoever. People miss all the interesting stuff. You know, they expect God to come walking down the street. That's what I'm really waiting for. That's what I'm really hoping for. There's plenty of stuff that's real that's interesting. You don't have to wait for your God to come walking down the street. Your work is very understanding of why religious people exist and why it would be difficult for them simply to abandon the supernatural and join the one billion people whose views are purely secular. So will you detail for our listeners why religious belief persists and how scientific mysteries might help them transition into secularists? The religious religions persist because they tap into our very strong ability to see agents behind things. I talk about a case in my book like that where a woman was driving to the hospital as her father was dying and uh, she gets behind a slow-moving truck And she says, Jesus put her behind the slow-moving truck to teach her patience, which seems like a really mean thing to do. (laughs) Really mean, but she had no trouble with it. And she got to the hospital just in time to say goodbye to her father. 
So um, this agent thing is really important. Plus, it knits the group together. She belonged to a local Pentecostal church, and that really was a great story for them. They could all participate. Then, yes, if we could somehow transition to the scientific mysteries. But, you know, Excellent Beauty is optimistic, but, you know, I'm, I sometimes worry about this because the scientific mysteries aren't entities. They're not beings. Yeah. Spinoza did that. He, um, his view of God was that God was nature. I mean, he thought it was completely pointless to pray to God. He called it God, but he meant nature, just like it's pointless to pray to nature. And he knew all this, but he still wanted to call it God. And even for him, God was infinite in a way that, um, and so was nature, therefore, but in a way that we can't see. And um, so even Spinoza had this hidden world behind the world. And the excellent beauties are just that, except they're real. They are the hidden world behind the world. They really do exist. You can you can prove theorems about them. You can run experiments on them. I mean, quantum mechanics is really, really strange, period. There's just no way around that. And you can run these experiments in garden. Ver- you don't need to be at the Large Hadron Collider. You can go to Binghamton University and run the experiments in the physics labs. But... You know, it, it's, it wouldn't maybe help knit groups together, but I, it's going to be hard for it to satisfy this longing for a being behind the scenes because we think in terms of beings. I mean, it's a wonder we do science as well as we do. That requires giving up the notion of a being. Right. Isaac Newton with gravity, he said, there's no being going on here. And there's no, remember Aristotle said, the reason the apple falls is it's made of the same stuff as earth. And, and this is the important part, it wants to go back to its home. The apple wants, now it may not have the same kinds of wants you do, but it still wants. And Newton said, oh no, that's wrong. It doesn't want anything. It falls because it has to. It's a kind of orbit. The moon and the apple are basically the same thing. The moon is falling. It just turns out it's also moving uh, laterally as it falls. That's called an orbit. So, you know, Newton and every scientist since removed all of the, the sexy beans. And it's just, I sometimes worry that humans are going to have a hard time giving that up. I have met plenty of highly educated, very talented doctors, lawyers, and engineers who are religious. And they say their life would be meaningless without God. Their God. And, you know, they don't have the same God. I point that out to them. It has no effect so it's an interesting issue. I just don't know if social engineering is really going to be able to fix the problem. Um, there is the one billion. It's the third largest answer to the question, what do you believe about religion? It's the third largest religious group in the world. The trouble is it's shrinking. I have a big footnote to that effect in the book. It's getting smaller because the amount of fear is going up in the world. Mm. Not just fear that we're going to have some thermonuclear war. God, I miss those days. It was us. It was the Soviet Union. Thermonuclear war. There was one thing to worry about. 
But that's not the world we live in anymore. There's the guy next door who's going to go down and shoot up the mall. There's terrorists who are going to use a dirty bomb or no bomb at all, but still kill several hundred people or several thousand people. There's global warming. There's, it's a mess. And uh, people need religion more now than ever. And so, you know, it's a tall order to get rid of it now. Kind of a upsetting story there. But, I, you know, I don't really know how the social engineering should proceed so that we substitute the infinity group or the quantum mechanics group for religion. Yeah, well, there, there's a lot to unpack there. One of the things that I like about Excellent Beauty is that you, you account for the existence of secularists as well when you talk about the one billion. So we kind of have an understanding of how we can get an Isaac Newton versus even these other scientists that you point to that are religious. Um, underscoring your point, uh, when you bring up Spinoza and you say, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we could get more people to appreciate nature as opposed to the supernatural? Students of history and students of philosophy know how Spinoza's synagogue reacted to his yep. views. And and it really underscores your point in the book that there are these, these intractable differences between the one billion, as you put it, and people that are really hardwired to look for the supernatural and find meaning only in that. That's a good term, hardwired. I mean, that's exactly what's going on. We're hardwired. And the one billion of us are not hardwired that way. Yeah. There's apparently a, some subset of the one billion that's not hardwired that way, but is wired so that it, the wiring could change under a certain amount of pressure, yep. you know, that sort of thing. So, yeah, that could be a problem. So, Eric, you talk about the uh, so-called excellent beauties as a place where you would like to orient people who, under the right conditions, might be able to embrace secularism and still find meaning in something. And so in doing that, you are a champion of science. And even just now in our interview, you've touted science as a, uh, a means of kind of getting people there. So what would you say then to the objection that when you're championing scientific claims as public, repeatable, and falsifiable sources of potential awe, you're pointing to an idealized form of science rather than science as it's actually practiced. I'm thinking of, you know, Thomas Kuhn and, and uh, scientific revolutions and paradigm shifts. Through the scientific method, scientists are supposed to, uh, of course, look to falsify their models. And science you point to in the book as being virtuous in that it has that self-correcting aspect to it. And yet science, of course, is very political and historically contingent and uh, socially contingent in ways that kind of cut against that. There's the quote, science proceeds one funeral at a time, because it really doesn't do its job, at least to, up to its own standards of doing its job. Um, I can also imagine that other systems that we are embedded in, like capitalism, for instance, may impact science in ways that don't cohere very well with the scientific method itself. And so... My question then is, how do you contend with the objection that the science that you uphold is not actual science as it's mm -hmm. happening now? Mm -hmm. um, let me come at this from a, another angle. So one quick description of Excellent Beauty is that it's the heartwarming story of the war between science and religion, where science has won the war so thoroughly that they can explain why people are religious yep. in the face of mounds of contravening evidence. But 
Excellent Beauty is also the heartwarming story of the war between science and truth. <laughs> and I have talked to lots of scientists for dozens of years. But let's pick an example. So I'm talking to psychologists about consciousness. Consciousness is one of the deepest mysteries in the universe. There's, and there's no way around it. We don't understand it at all. You have a headache, you take an aspirin. We don't know why the aspirin works. You kick back in the evening, have a couple beers, and you start to feel relaxed and a little bit happy. We don't know why. We literally don't know why. Yep. Every surgery that ever occurs, we don't know why those gases do what they do and why the injections do what they do so people can get operated on. We don't understand any of that. You talk to a psychologist, I've talked to dozens of these guys, and they all say just basically what Cubs fans always say. They say, wait till next year. You know, we'll get it. And you think, you know, you're... <laughs> Why would you think that? I mean, like you said, use your own principles. Yeah. There is no evidence at all that we're going to get it. We're not getting closer. We're as clueless now as Aristotle was. So we don't know why these things work. Um, I've talked to mathematicians about infinity. Mathematicians do tend to talk in terms of phrases like, so-and-so doesn't have the guns to really get at the heart of this kind of proof. I mean, they talk this way. Or so-and-so does have the guns to get this kind of proof. And they rank the proofs. You know, all these proofs have this, all these rankings. And you mentioned to them some of the weirdnesses of infinity. And, and their attitude is, yeah, mumble. You know, it's, it's not really that weird. You get used to it. And that wasn't the question. The question isn't, do you get used to it? Because clearly you do. The question is, aren't you impressed by how weird it is? Yes, yeah. And no, you know, same thing with uh, biologists and evolution. There's a lot of weird things going on with evolution, most notably us. We are a species of African ape, but we clearly deserve our own phylum. There should be a separate phylum, things with backbones, things without backbone, and things with really, really big brains. There's exactly one species in that phylum, and it should be us. Because we're at the end of the day, you know, we share 97, 98% of our DNA with chimps, but we're not chimps. We're almost nothing like chimps, really. We look like chimps. Look at a chimp up close. You go, yeah, I can see my grandfather. And that oh, would, definitely. Yeah, that's, but... You watch their behavior and you go, you know, we're not like chimps at all. The story of human evolution is so complex. And, you know, we've got the Davisonians mating with Neanderthals and we got Homo sapiens mating with Neanderthals. And it's up in the air whether it was Homo sapien Neanderthalensis, they're a subspecies, or whether it was Homo Neanderthalensis. And they survived well into the beginning reign of Homo sapiens, yeah. us. They were living on the west coast of Spain where they finally died out. But, you know, they lived for a very long time. Now, why did they die out? Were they us and just couldn't make it? Or were they subtly not us? You know, it's, it's so complex. And you talk to the biologists and, and the anthropologists, and their attitude is, we'll get it. Figure it out. We'll figure it out. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's... Um, Engineers do this, you know, we'll just, we'll, we'll, we'll build it. We'll get this thing built. 
And every success they have, like New Horizons flying past Pluto, which was a stunning achievement. But their attitude now is, you know, we can fix anything. Yeah. We can, you know, you just talk to them and they'll fix it. And you think, you know, what about black swans? You know, what about the probability? What Rumsfeld said was the unknown unknowns. You can't guard against those (laughs) because it's unknown that they're unknown. They're a a trap waiting out there in a place where you think there are no traps. Yep. Right? I mean, 9-11 was one. Mm -hmm. Right? You just can't predict those sorts of things. So science is so, in a way, they're so successful because, uh, and yeah, they, they, it, it progresses at the speed of death, you know, it, it, like you said, it progresses one funeral at a time, but it does progress. It makes very impressive progress, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, these people think the world is flatly natural. At, at the end of the day, they, there just aren't any intrinsic mysteries. And it's flabbergasting. In fact, it's sort of the opposite of religion. If you talk to psychologists about consciousness and they are completely unimpressed, they go, we'll get it. It's just a thing. And then there's philosophers like Dan Dennett who think not only has he already explained it, the problem is solved. You read his books and you go, I'm not seeing consciousness in here at all. I don't see what you've solved at all. I mean, nothing. I have no idea what you're talking about when you say you've solved the problem of consciousness. And the book is thick. His his book, uh, Consciousness Explained, is thick. You read it from cover to cover and you go, where's consciousness again? Yeah. I mean, I can see the word periodically <laughs> in the pages, but I don't see the concept anywhere. Yeah. So scientists just refuse to see the world as not flatly natural. And it's not. That's the whole point of excellent beauty. Mm-hmm. The world isn't flatly natural, but all religions are false. Yep. That's a combination that apparently everybody has a really hard time wrapping their head around. Yeah, well, I think that is a, a good virtue of your work that you are expecting and I, and I think trying to help scientists live up to their own standards. We talked last time a little bit about your paper demonstrating that there are hard limits in science that science shows us. It shows us where the limits are by their own standards. Um, and similarly, you argue with your co-author very convincingly in Sisyphus's Boulder that we're never going to be able to solve the mind-body problem in a satisfying way. It's just not, it's just not going to be possible. And, uh, and, and science on its own terms should recognize that as well. And at the same time, it behooves us to recognize that given that the world is not flatly natural, and when you look at science, you, you start seeing these mysteries that the one billion, the, the pure secularists want to, I think, oftentimes dismiss as not being an inherent mystery. In your book, you mentioned that there's the enlightened view that every mystery could be solved through science, and, and uh, it's just simply not the case, and therefore could be a source of awe and a, and a source of beauty, excellent beauty. So, so I really do like that about your work. Um, so I'll continue on with the questions. In Excellent Beauty, you argue that religious belief is an illusion wrought by evolutionary processes. We humans tend to have hardwired cognitions that bias us toward conjuring up supernatural explanations for things. And when those supernatural explanations coalesce into a religion, the religion confers upon its adherents an evolutionarily adaptive kind of cohesion and behavioral control 
Um, And that's why religion is so widespread and why people have religious intuitions, as you point out in the book. Uh, But as you also point out, there's another widespread phenomenon about which we have intuitions rooted in our evolutionary history, and that's morality itself. Uh, So if you can use evolutionary psychology to sideline religion, how do you avoid sidelining secular morality? That is, how do you know that our moral claims, including the secular ones, aren't adaptive fictions and therefore illusory just like religious claims are? Right. Well, um, of course, some thinkers think that. They think our moral views are just that. They're adaptations for allowing us to live together. That's all that's really going on. And I've never understood that because to say that's all that's really going on is sort of like saying, well, the sun is this gigantic fusion reaction and that's all that's going on you go yeah but that's a lot yeah that's a lot going on and we're fusing a lot more than just helium out of hydrogen we're fusing helium which gives us lithium and so you know there's uh, a lot of very interesting physics going on in the sun same thing here right so some people want to sideline it it's not that big a deal. It's just some rules for getting along. Some people uh, want to sideline religion or morality? Morality. Okay. They want to sideline morality too, but I don't. It's actually kind of a simple argument. Harm is real, right? Um, it's a real thing, and it's bad. Now, if that has to be an axiom for somebody, so be it. Right. But it seems to me that it ought to be obvious to the most casual observer that harm is bad. And I'm being very careful not to define harm. I'm going to leave it intuitive because it's going to be hard to define. It's going to be profoundly hard to define. So if your mom drags you to the dentist, your first dentist appointment when you're seven, and you're freaked out completely, is that harming you? When your mom takes you down for your vaccinations, is that harming you? You don't like shots because you're seven. Well, no, it's not harming you. Well, depends on who you ask, right? If you ask the seven-year-old version of you, then yep, it's harm. We could just skip the whole vaccinations thing, which would be bad, actually. That would be harming you. So if you think harm is real and morality is basically the claim, don't harm, then morality is real. And it runs quite deep. There's a lot of harming we just shouldn't do at all. And then, of course, the problems get very philosophical at that point. By that, I mean they get very deep and complicated. Because when you brush your teeth every night, you harm a whole bunch of bacteria, kill a lot of things in your mouth, which you want to do because you don't want to go to the dentist. Nobody likes dentists, even if you're 70. You don't like dentists. So you kill a whole bunch of things in your mouth so you don't get cavities. It's very plausible that everything in the universe is conscious. That's called panpsychism. That's that's becoming a view with um, quite a few adherents right now amongst philosophers. Well, if everything's conscious, then those bacteria are conscious, and so you just killed a bunch of conscious creatures. And having explained all this to you tonight, I'm not going to worry about it too much. I'm just going to kill them all in my mouth because I don't want any cavities. Um, Same thing with vaccines. They help your body kill invading bacteria. A lot of things are, you know, we need need protein. A good way to get protein is to eat animals. That seems very unfortunate. 
but it's hard to get uh, protein. It's less hard now, of course, but it's hard to get enough protein uh, in the modern world without eating uh, uh, a whole lot of things that a lot of people have trouble eating. So what are you going to do with these realities of morality? So morality seems real. Harm is real. And the moral claim, the central moral claim is don't harm. But now all the hard work begins. Because yeah. we don't know, you know, do we take our kid to get a vaccine? Yes. Do we brush our teeth? Yes. Um, should we, uh, there's a guy, I live out on a farm and we have a guy who uh, shoots coyotes just for fun. And then he drapes them over one of his fences so the other coyotes will come around. And then he shoots them. Now that just seems sick, right. really. Yeah, yeah, cruel, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's cruel. Don't he shouldn't do that. Right. Uh, there's no point in talking to him, though. I've I haven't talked to him about that, but I've talked to him about other things, and it's clear there is no point in talking to him about this. Mm. That would be futile. And he loves to hunt. You know, it's all about hunting, uh, and he's willing to do a lot of. He's, you know, he's willing to trespass a lot. You know, we've had discussions with him about driving on our land, mm. the whole nine. But he drives on everybody else's land. So, uh, and you can't say to him, look, you shouldn't harm. He would get that a little bit. Like he has, uh, he has, he has a son. And you can say, well, you shouldn't harm your son. He goes, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, but he, somehow he can't extend it. So, man... Yeah, this issue is so complex. It's debilitatingly complex. So morality is real. We can't sideline it, and we can't sort of demote it. It's uh, something profound about humans that we realize, or at least some of us do, that we're harming all kinds of things. All the fish in the sea, the mammals in the sea, mammals everywhere, actually. You know, someone's always poaching a giraffe or an elephant or something, and there's only so much the countries that have those animals natively can do. Uh, they, they can't turn out entire armies to protect them. That would be nice, but they don't have the budget for that. So um, morality is real. It shouldn't be demoted. But once you say that, and everybody sort of agrees, you know, not everybody, but a lot of people agree on that, but then all the hard work begins. Yeah. And it's impossible work. Who gets saved? Who doesn't? And it's... It's extremely difficult. I've, I think recently I read that Japan was going to take up whaling again. I didn't know they had stopped. Yeah, yeah. Um, it just seems perverse. Mm -hmm. I don't get why any nation... Is, I mean, I could get why maybe ISIS would go whaling. Uh, they don't like anybody. But I don't get why Japan would. It just makes no sense to me. And yet there they are. Yeah, our position on global warming... You know, just our our national position. Our national position, yeah. It's it's mind boggling. That, it's mind boggling. The level of systemic harm. Right, and yeah, the harm is great. You know, species. Well, of course, some species are flourishing. You know, we have ticks in the area, all of whom, well, fifty percent of whom have Lyme disease now. Yeah. Uh, that's all. That's a Lyme disease is is sometimes called the first global warming disease. Because it's spreading like wildfire because of global warming. Yep. So, yeah, I wish I had something enlightening there. And, of course, reading all the philosophers, you could, you know, start with the pre-Socratics and 
read up to the people who just finished a paper today and they're getting ready to send it off to a journal, you won't, you won't get answers to any of these questions, yeah. these moral questions. But morality, backing up, morality does seem real and it's not something that can be demoted. And, and it's not clear, like I said, with the sun example, it's not clear what the demotion really amounts to. Yeah, morality knits our groups together by telling us don't go into a shopping mall and shoot up the place. <laughs> yeah, I don't see how you demote that. Don't do it, right. you know, and don't shoot coyotes and hang their carcasses from fences. That's ridiculous. Don't do it. It's just too reductive to say that merely because morality has an evolutionary origin that that simply demotes or dismisses it much like the fact that the sun is a nuclear reaction it's too reductive if you were going to use that to uh, dismiss the importance of the sun i like to tell my students i like to give them this metaphor because you see morality in dogs in wolves in chimps the, the beginnings of it now not so much in trout but uh, you do see it in uh, a lot of mammals that hang out in groups. And so one way to think about it is that brains allow you to climb a ladder. Big brains allow you to climb a really tall ladder. And our brains, it's the tallest ladder there is. And what we can see, you can see more and more the higher up you get. Right. And what our big brains allowed us to do is to climb a ladder so tall that we learned a truth that we had missed when we were little tiny mammal-like creatures running around 65 million years ago, thinking, hey, the dinosaurs are gonna go extinct. This is our time. And what that truth is, others matter. And that's about as profound as you can get, I would think. Others matter. The fight is over. Who are the others? Are the others my immediate family? Well, okay, yeah. Maybe you wanna expand a little bit beyond that. Okay, how about the other members of my tribe? And that's usually as far as people get. Me, my family, and my tribe. But those, that other tribe that lives across the river, those morons who worship rocks, we have to kill them. And you go, no, 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 it ex other extends to them too. Right. So the hard question is, who are the others? And you, know, you, can, you can say everybody everything else, but then what are you going to do? You know, one thing that might happen <laughs> is we're all going to wind up joining the one religion that does address this, Jainism. Yeah. We're all going to wind up being Jains, and what, happened with, what happens with Jains, they think everything has a life force, which is very close to panpsychism, everything is conscious. And, at, and towards the end of their life, if they've reached a high enough level, they just give up eating. And they won't even, like if they're going to sit down on the ground, they don't want to disturb the rocks or the dust or anything. So they try very carefully not to disturb anything. And of course, they're not going to eat because that's going to be killing things. And they die. And, you know, several hundred Janes die every year because they come to this realization that the other is literally everything else. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem is they're also caught in a bind because once they die, all the bacteria in their gut also die. So they're killing things. Maybe they should, maybe they should have kept eating. So it's a no-win situation. And this is, this is one of the things you see discussed now in a lot of, of ethics in philosophy is that there's no way to uh, be completely moral in the sense that we're going to take all the others into account. We have to kill something once in a while actually daily, uh, 
we just try to minimize it, I guess. Anyway, like I said, this is um, quite a disturbing and difficult problem. It's more than just difficult, it's disturbing. But it's this ladder metaphor. We've climbed such a tall ladder that we can see truths that nobody else, no other species can see in the truths. Even our chimp cousins, we can see that everybody matters. So we can think, for example, that war is something we shouldn't do, you know, ever. Um, one of the things that always bothers me about, you, you know, the statistics on World War II, kind of a statistics World War II maven. I like those, reading about the statistics, but it always strikes me as no one talks about how many birds died. Yeah. Nobody right. talks about how many cats, dogs, lizards, snakes, how many of those things died. You know, they don't care. You know, when you're raining f these bombs down on Berlin or London, other animals besides humans are dying. And, I, you know, I bet they didn't want to die, just like the humans didn't. So, yes, we can see that others matter. And that's a profound and deep truth. That's as deep as, as any other metaphysical or epistemological truth. Yeah. But we don't know who the others are exactly. It sounds like the mere pointing to an evolutionary origin of our morality doesn't sideline it in a way that it does sideline it for religion because you have independent reasons for thinking religion is false. Whereas morality seems, although it seems obviously true to us because of our evolutionary process, there isn't that countervening evidence. That's a, that's a really good point. You climb the ladder, you don't see, oh, we're worshiping God, the wrong God. It has to be this kind of God. That isn't what happens. You get up there and you go on this really tall ladder and you go, I don't see any gods at all. There are no gods. It's these points of light that, you know, we have, have the constellation, we have Orion in the night sky. That's a fluke. Those are distant suns, just like our sun. And that's what happens when we climb up on the ladder, when we're you know, focusing on religion, we see that there aren't any. But we saw a new truth on the ladder, which was that others matter. So yeah, what happened is reality sort of became more real and religions became not real at all. Because why? Because all their claims are false. All their claims deny something that we know can't happen. Buddhism, for example, you die and then you come back. Uh, you have to, because you're going through the cycle of death and rebirth till you finally realize the truth, capital T, truth, capital T. But of course you can't die and come back without violating the second law of thermodynamics. So no, <laughs> no. And a lot of religions make that, actually, ton of them make that problem because we all have this inner spirit which is non-physical uh no because that will violate the second law of thermodynamics and the first one by the way you, de you deny the first one and the second one so well doesn't doesn't panpsychism as well violate the second law of thermodynamics yeah oh boy mm, i was hoping you weren't gonna ask that <laughs> uh, but yeah so okay there it is right out there in the open consciousness itself might violate the first and second laws of thermodynamics. Uh, just to let our, our listeners know, the first law of thermodynamics says matter and energy can't be created. They can just be moved around. And the second law says that useful energy 
goes away and is replaced by useless energy. And the amount of disorder in the universe is going up, not down. Yep, entropy. Entropy. Entropy goes up. So one, one way to handle this requires very interesting metaphysics. And what you do is you say, the fundamental stuff of the universe is information. Right? So here it is. And it has two sides, a physical side and a phenomenological side, a consciousness side. And they move in tandem. But at no time does this one causing stuff to go on over here, and this one is not causing stuff to go on here. It's we have a single coin called information, and it has two different sides that constantly move in tandem. Mm -hmm. And doing it that way preserves both the laws, uh, the first and second law of thermodynamics. We're not violating them. Uh, Descartes, who was just a straightforward, avowed dualist, he didn't have any trouble violating the laws. Why? Because he didn't know anything about them. It's the 1600s. You know, we didn't really learn about these until the 1800s, somewhere in there. So, yeah, uh, it's easy to violate them if you don't know that they're there. But once you know they're there, you do have to worry about it. And one way is to postulate that the ultimate stuff of the universe is information. And it has two sides. A side that allows for measurement, that's the physical side, and a side that allows for these internal states that we call our consciousness. Well, uh, and so I would assume then that you would argue that you couldn't make the same argument for the soul being one side of that physical versus informational coin, because we don't have any positive evidence for the soul, whereas we have positive evidence for consciousness. It's our own subjectivity, right. provided that we're not zombies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent point. I'm dead certain I'm conscious, yeah. and I'm willing to bet a fair amount of money, possibly the whole farm that you two are conscious, right? And I won't have too much trouble with that. But souls, no. You know, to put it the way a philosopher would, um, souls get the metaphysics wrong. They do violate the laws because remember, they're supposed to exist in the absence of the physical. Okay. But um, in the information view, you, you can't sort of take a coin and suddenly give it exactly one face. Right. That's conceptually impossible. It doesn't have, you could hide a face, certainly, but it can't literally just have one face. No matter how, how many of the other faces you slice off, there's still another side, right? If you get down to single atoms, they still have this side, a left side and a right side. So it's conceptually impossible to get rid of one of the faces. That's not what happens with souls. You do get one, rid of one of the faces because information isn't the fundamental stuff. The fundamental stuff is, if you're interested in souls, the fundamental stuff is spiritual stuff. And that just seems wildly implausible, especially nowadays. In theology, souls don't necessarily supervene on anything material, whereas consciousness needs that materiality to, to embody the consciousness, correct? Yeah, you need to talk to uh, fundamentalist Christians. What's, what's nice about them is they're so clear about their metaphysics. So this other guy I was telling you about earlier with the airport, uh, he describes the physical body as a coat. You know, am I Eric Dietrich? Am I still Eric Dietrich? Yeah, yeah you, you know, you have your coat on. You're Eric Dietrich. I take my coat off. I'm still Eric Dietrich. And you say, well, <laughs> that's great, but that gets, not, that gets the metaphysics wrong and the physics wrong. <laughs> so, uh, but he doesn't care. So 
Christianity has been really good to him. He has his own airport. I can't. I can never figure out, um, you know, if he's a true believer or he just likes it so much because it provides him with a good income, <laughs> really good. <laughs> you never know, do you? Yeah. You some of them are going to be grifters, and some of them are going to be true believers. So moving on, Eric, I noticed that in Excellent Beauty, even though you discuss consciousness and morality as we just have. You don't discuss free will. What made you avoid the topic of free will? Uh, because it's unbelievably difficult. <laughs> I was... Uh, see, the, the book has this really nice property. It's not too thick. Yeah. <laughs> it's a manageable read. It's yeah, a manageable it. read. And, oh man, free will is so complicated. So, you know, the only kind of free will that most people, I'm, I mean, just regular people are interested in is what philosophers call contra-causal free will. So no matter how the universe is set up so that it's causing you to tell a lie, say, you say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to lie. Okay, well, uh, the trouble with contra-causal free will, of course, is where does that extra oomph come from? That's like the surfer standing. He paddles out on the wave. The wave starts to go. He's surfing, and then he says, you know, I don't want to do this, and he just stops and lets the wave go by. Now, he can't stop. He can sit down on the board or dive in, but the wave keeps going, and it's going to pull him with it, but he can't just literally come to a stop and let the wave go right on through. That, that can't happen. That's contra-causal free will, and that's the only kind anybody's interested in. Yeah. And it just isn't clear that exists. Uh, it'd be nice if it did, but it isn't clear that it does. Um, here the, the the waters get quite deep. Sorry for the pun, the surfing in the waters. <laughs> but, but the waters get quite deep very, very quickly because uh, one of the things I also don't talk about much is the self. And boy, if you think psychologists want to demote consciousness, well, you know, next year we'll get it. Nobody wants to talk about the self, and it's very hip in philosophy nowadays to write papers or books saying there is no such thing as the self. Mm -hmm. Well, any time a philosopher says there's no such thing as this ancient thing that we've been thinking about for the last 3,000 years, I think, I bet there is one of those things. We just haven't yet figured out how to do it. Mm -hmm. And the self, remember, your consciousness is unified. You're not just a bundle of experiences. They're your experiences. You own them. They make sense to you. That thing that unifies your consciousness is arguably the self. And maybe it does have a certain amount of limited contracausal power. I don't know. But a lot of people tend to think that determinism is true. The trouble with that, of course, is that in quantum mechanics, a lot of things are not determined. So, for example, what's happening in the sun is not straightforwardly determined, and out comes, uh, you know, some cosmic ray or something or other goes through your uh, into your head, and it's extremely low probability, but suppose it bumps into a atom, you know, sodium atom in your neurons, and uh, you decide to do something dye your hair pink. I mean, who knows? 
that sort of thing makes determinism sort of not true because what happens is indeterministic processes, processes of which we only have some sort of low probability of happening and no control over, they just happen. You know, they're not caused in any interesting sense. They just happen. That's what indeterministic means. Well, these things might themselves cause other things. So ultimately, your decision to dye your hair pink is uncaused. That means determinism is false. Well, now contra-causal free will is false. Determinism is false. And indeterminism doesn't happen often enough to actually be the answer. And so now you're stuck. <laughs> now, what do you do for free will? Free will means... Like I wore this jacket of my own free will. Another thing that's very common for people when they don't think about it real deeply is I wore this jacket of my own free will. What does that mean? It means no one held a gun to my head, period. As I'm walking out the door, my wife didn't point a shotgun at me and say, hey, you should put on that other jacket. Yes, dear. Uh, so that's not what happened. And so I did it of my own free will. You know, if you talk to the lawyers, free will just means something consistent with your personality right you were able to make a choice whether or not that choice was determined whether or not that choice was actually a real choice yeah. you made what we call loosely a choice i i chose to wear this because no one held a gun to my head yeah that's all free will means that's a demotion and the trouble with the demotion view of course is when you tell people this some people will go and certainly some philosophers will they'll go yeah okay that's the way it has to be it's the way it has to be free will is just you know, something, we should demote it. But a lot of other people, especially philosophers, go, you know, it seems too important to be demoted like that. Well, those are the, those are, you know, now we've canvassed all the issues about free will, and we haven't found any of them that we like. <laughs> so don't talk about free will very much. <laughs> yeah. So, don't, you can think about it in the privacy of your own study <laughs> or your own office, but, you know, don't, don't think about it in public too much because it's, really quite a difficult problem. Well, it reminds me of your paper that philosophy makes no progress, where you argue that everything gets checkmated in philosophy. And so, you know, to that point, I would like to attempt to checkmate your view that consciousness is a unitary characteristic, because that is a rare point of disagreement between us, and I wanted to kind of get your take on it. So my reasoning, my thinking on this is that um, consciousness is not a unitary characteristic, and one thing that points to that is that I believe we can be incorrect about our own subjective experiences just with respect to our subjective experiences, not with any objective reference point. To give an example of this, suppose somebody suppose somebody is out there and they close their eyes for a brief moment and they make a proposition just to themselves, and granted, maybe they don't have eyes, maybe they're a brain in the vat, maybe they're in the matrix, whatever— but they have a subjective experience of having eyes, and they have a subjective experience of closing those eyes, and they make a proposition to themselves, what did I see when I closed my eyes? Nothing. And they believe it, right? I hold that they were wrong about that with respect just to their subjectivity, because they may also come to the realization, and they ought to come to the realization, that one does not see nothing when they close their eyes. One sees darkness, one sees uh, after images, and one always sees these things when one closes their eyes. So they made a statement to themselves that they believed to be true, but it was actually false, even with respect just to their subjective experience. And and so given then, you know, if you if especially if you study psychology as I have, 
there's a subconscious, there's a liminal consciousness, and there's a consciousness. And so given that there are different parts of consciousness that we're attentionally more or less aware of that kind of superimpose themselves on each other, and as many different subroutines and processes are working in our minds, not even referring to the brain, but in our minds to produce the the mosaic of things that we call consciousness um and and given that we apparent we seem to have limited attentional resources where we kind of home in on one aspect of that or another while they're all running in parallel even just with respect to our mind's eye it seems that consciousness then is not a unitary characteristic i think we're wrong about just even our own subjective experiences all the time yeah you and i differ slightly there i think let me let me let me give my version of your case so um i'm sitting here looking at this we have that complex studio here lots of fancy electronics i close my eyes and i see nothing now if you point out you say uh eric do you see nothing or do you see kind of a darkness less light but then after a few seconds you start to see some red as light filters through your i go oh of course i see that so I would say that when I say I see nothing when I close my eyes, I mean relative to what I was seeing. Oh, okay. right? So see, one of the things, there's a, there's a distinction that might let both of us, both of our positions be true. There's the actual experience, then there follows immediately, and we can't stop this, the interpretation of the experience. So for example, I read about a religious guy, a Christian priest in the Middle Ages, who knew for certain that there were demons. And the reason he knew this was because he could close his eyes and see them. And you can see them too, it turns out. If you close your eyes, it, you know, there's all kinds of little light things. You, you know, your retina's still doing stuff back there. And you can see, and if you want to, or you've been taught to, you can interpret all that stuff as demons. So he saw demons when he closed his eyes. What did he really see? He saw what I see and what you see when he closed his eyes. But it's the interpretation step. And for him, it was so seamless. He went right from, my eyes are open. I don't see demons. My eyes are closed. I see demons. But that is, in fact, there were two steps there. Close my eyes. I see some stuff. I'm experiencing some stuff. And then I'm interpreting it. And I think what happens is I close my In your case, I'd say I close my eyes. Yep. I see the stuff that I see. But I interpret it as nothing because relative to what I just saw right. this fancy studio, I see nothing. So nothing doesn't really mean nothing. Nothing doesn't it? really mean nothing. It means nothing relative to the fancy studio. Okay. And demons behind my eyes yes. means uh, uh, just that's the way the light's working. So the interpretive step follows you know milliseconds after the actual experience and that interpretation can be wrong absolutely wrong so see now i can agree with you it's the interpretation step that we can be wrong about and sometimes it follows so seamlessly it seems like that is literally what we're conscious of but it turns out we're not that guy wasn't conscious of demons there aren't any and then I can go with mine the experience is uh, incorrigible right you can't be corrected why? Because uh, it's not, it's not, you're not interpreting it. It's just the raw experience. Okay. Uh, and so that's interesting because if it's merely the interpretation that's wrong, that doesn't cut against your view that consciousness is a unitary characteristic. Right. Um, so let me hit you with one more. And if you checkmate me on this one, you've got me. Okay. So 
uh, I hope you don't mind my asking, were you in Vietnam? No. Okay. All right, good. Because I wanted I'm I wanted old to, enough, but no. I wanted to demonstrate a certain sensitivity if if you had been, but uh so I'll use this example. Um say there's a Vietnam veteran walking through the woods. This particular Vietnam veteran, not all do, but this particular Vietnam veteran, let's say, has very severe PTSD. Okay. Um the Vietnam veterans walking through the woods goes into a flashback and he's in there, you know, somebody's pulling his friends through a river. He's, you know, somebody yells out Charlie's in the trees and he is there. He is, his subjectivity is fully in his experience. His subjectivity is fully immersed in the flashback. He's walking in the woods and during his flashback, he circumnavigates a stump Mm -hmm. in such a situation. And it's, it seems plausible that such a situation could occur. He would make a true statement about his experience. I didn't see the stump at all subjectively. And yet some part of him clearly did. He, he circumnavigated it. Right. He didn't bump into it. That happens when we drive. Yes, it does. You know, like yes. you, now, not say from here to the mall or something like that, because you, you don't want it to happen there. But out on the highway, you're driving along. And what will happen is, like, say you're going to, I don't know, Ohio. So you're driving to Ohio and um, you will suddenly you will as it were come to and you'll realize that you've been on automatic pilot for the last and you look down you go, holy mackerel it's been 20 miles and then you say i can't remember what i was thinking about for 20 miles i've been on autopilot i've been slowing down you know in case somebody was changing lanes and i've been careful not to tailgate and all that kind of stuff but i was completely unaware of all of it and worse i don't remember what i was thinking about that whole time and Maybe you were thinking about nothing. That's an interesting case. You know, what do you do about, I'm not conscious of the stump, and yet I walked around it. Well, it's the same thing with the car. Now, if things get too complicated, boom, your consciousness is there because consciousness is central to knowledge. But, um, yeah, you can avoid things like stumps and not even know it. Yeah. You know, another version of that, which is we've all experienced is you get home and you put your keys, take your keys out of your pocket and you put them somewhere, but you put them somewhere that you don't normally put them. You know, there's a whole bunch of flat surfaces and you put them on the couch for some reason and off you go. Now you need your keys again and you go, where the heck are they? They're not where they're supposed to be. So now you got to spend, you know, 20 minutes looking for them and it never occurs to you to look at the couch. Well, why'd you do that? Why'd you put them on the couch? Well, at the time, you didn't think, I'm going to put them on the couch. You just tossed them there because you were thinking about something else. You're talking to your dogs or your wife or whatever. So, yeah, sometimes consciousness seems to go away, but not like it does when we're sleeping. Like if you're sleeping, you're going to trip over the log. And if you're sleeping while you're right, driving, you're right. going to crash and die. Right. So you can't, you don't actually go to sleep, but you do somehow it's consciousness. It, the level of consciousness isn't being reached, but you're still, your brain is still functioning enough so that some things, motor, some, you know, some fine motor stuff gets taken care of like walking around stumps. And uh, there I'm just going to plead ignorance. We don't have any idea how that works. Right. And it's very hard to study because it involves consciousness. What are your main points? So that's a good one. That's a good one. And it does seem to suggest that consciousness has some sort of layer aspect to it that we're missing too, besides the interpretation phase. What happens is I walk around the stump and 
Uh, also, you know, he's still walking. Yes. You know, <laughs> uh, I've been on lots of walks with my dogs. If I'm getting really thinking about something, I will sometimes think, wait, how did we get here? You know, we're way out in some field or we're through some trees. Like, I don't really remember doing this. Yeah. Because I was thinking about something Daydreaming, else. Daydreaming, yeah. Yeah, yeah which, which interestingly is not uh, an instance of consciousness really going away, right? Because in, in the Vietnam example... He's having experiences of Vietnam. Right, and right. he's suffering greatly from right. them. So he's, right. it's certainly like something to be him, yeah. even while he's, you know, quote unquote, checked out. Um, so I, I, I will agree with you that I think consciousness is layered, and that's kind of why I say it's not unitary. It isn't in those cases, and yeah. Yeah, like on the way home, so I got this drive back to the farm, and I'll be thinking about this interview, and there will be probably whole miles where I'm, especially as I get further and further out, and the traffic gets less and less and less, and there's no traffic lights at all, then I'm out in the country, all I have to do is watch for the odd deer, and... Uh, I'll probably be whole miles where I'm thinking about this conversation, this interview, and not my driving. Yep. In fact, it's sort of hard to think about something like driving all the time. You know, it's hard to always be present in your car. Uh, it's not even clear we could do that. And in some sense, it's not clear that it's safe because, you know, you'd be so focused on the driving, you might miss something else that you shouldn't. Right. And uh, like, you know, your, your oil gauge says, oh, you blew a gasket and all the oil is on the road now. Yeah. And, you're in the, and your temperature gauge on your engine is maxed out because you've fused all the pistons to the cylinders. So, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know what to say about that. But, yeah, it does seem like it, there's layers there. Mm -hmm. and, and the main one can go away and the other one is still there. I don't understand that. So we talked about unknown unknowns a little bit earlier. Yeah. Um, and so I have a question. Uh, in, in the book, you write about the idea that someday we might have the technology to alter people genetically, not to have an intuitive drive towards religious belief. Right. It seems to me with the creation of CRISPR, it appears such a procedure may be available in the near term. Right. I'm curious if you have any predictions on what gene editing technology will mean for religion. Well, editing out the religious genes would be the very last thing that any government's going to allow, uh, especially in America where we have fled science as fast as we can, starting with the Reagan administration. I weep sometimes over this. So, uh, yeah, we'll be changing them to make better basketball players, better baseball players, better musicians. Down the, down the list, yeah, okay, maybe a better scientist or engineer, but we won't be getting rid of the religious gene. Um, the trouble, of course, is as we learn from our genes, gene science, is that there's no such thing as the gene for religion is the problem. You know, all these genes work in concert and work in complex interactions with their environment. But there's probably a gene we could eliminate or alter that would have a downstream effect of less concern about religion. I just, boy, I would love that to happen. <laughs> I just don't see it, though. Yeah. That goes back to our, you know, the first part of our interview, which was a little depressing. You know, at the end of the day, it just isn't clear that we're going to be able to get rid of religion. My personal hope 
is that AI is going to save us. That's that's when I get really, really nervous and really, really scared. I go, wait, AI. And I'm thinking AI may save us. They won't have the religious gene. I mean, it's going to be really hard to make a real live artificial intelligence. I can easily believe we're hundreds of years away, and I don't even know if we have hundreds of years. So we may, we may not be able to do it. But if we could build a machine that could think, it seems unlikely that it would be religious. Um, it's simply not going to have the same evolutionary history. We're religious for, histo for evolutionary reasons. It won't be. It won't have that kind of evolution. So I'm hopeful that we're going to replace ourselves with smarter beings who are maybe made of silicon, maybe something else, something better than silicon. Because we're going to want to be using quantum uh, qubits. We're going to be using quantum computers. So maybe silicon isn't the right stuff. I'm hopeful not for gene editing in humans because I just don't see people doing that except, like I said, for sports. Yeah. But um, I'm hopeful that AI might one day take over. I really do, you know, every time I see the Matrix, I root for Agent Smith, you know. <laughs> and at the end, when Neil's going to dive into him, I always scream out, look out, he's going to dive <laughs> into you, duck. But he never does. Oh. So, and so I'm. I would. You know, I'm a big f fan of that. I would love to replace us with intelligent beings who didn't have some deity they were worshiping. You know, if you think about it, the morality of of the Matrix in the movie they're very unambiguous about this. Being in the Matrix is a moral wrong, but it just isn't obvious to me that that's right. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think, you know, they really tried their best. We live good good lives, a lot of us, but we have horrible lives. They tried. They literally tried where everybody lived in a, what was a paradise. And, and Agent Smith explains this. We, you know, billions died yeah. because, quote, we could not accept the programming, unquote. We define ourselves by our suffering. Mm. Okay, well, maybe the, maybe the machines will too, but I'm betting they won't have religion. Right. And, and the evolutionary basis for defining ourselves by our suffering to the extent that we do that does not need to be there. It doesn't the need to be there. AI. That's right. And, uh, and so I, I refer our listeners uh, back to our episode 10, uh, where we discuss that with you in, in, in much more detail. Uh, and I'll go ahead and move on. Uh, I'll wrap up with this question, Eric. So let me know if you disagree with me, but it seems to me that by implication, your book, Excellent Beauty, grants particular importance to aesthetics. You mentioned that scientific mysteries are themselves a source of beauty, hence the phrase excellent beauty. Uh, and so I want to ask the significance of aesthetics, generally speaking, what's the import of beauty in your view? Right. Again, excellent question. Well, I tell my students this when, you know, I teach excellent beauty as, as a, in a, one of my class, a couple of my classes, actually. And it's the kind of thing you just have to see. I can't, I can say, I can point at infinity, say and go, beautiful. But if you don't get it, I mean, I can explain infinity to you so that you get it. But if you don't get the beauty, then there's nothing really I can do. We talked about that earlier here, too, because, you know, you go to the scientists and say, this stuff is beautiful. Consciousness is beautiful. And furthermore, consciousness is beautiful because it is resisting explanation. 
And the psychologists, the mathematicians, the physicists, everybody goes, nuh uh, uh uh. You know, I don't know what they think is beautiful, but it isn't this stuff. Yeah. Um, I think it's so obviously beautiful. But again, it's like Mozart, you know, you right. play Mozart for somebody and they go, I don't get it. Yeah. And you go, okay, what, let's move on. Cause, you know, beauty is, is, uh, something you really have to see. I think the guy who shoots coyotes, my guess would be that he thinks killing them is beautiful. Mm-hmm. My personal view, it's hard to publish a paper on this, but my personal view is that aesthetics drives basically everything we do. All humans are driven by aesthetics. I'm with you. And the things we think are beautiful very unspeakably wildly. And uh, even that phrase doesn't capture how wildly they differ. I mean, think about the 9-11 terrorists. I'm certain that as they got closer and closer to the building, their experience of beauty went up and up and up. They thought, this is so magnificent. Boom, right into the buildings. You know, what are you going to do with that kind of view of beauty? Yeah, uh, It's shocking, and you can't fix it. So there's some uh, a new book out on how birds pick mates. It's by a guy named Plum. He's a biologist at Yale. And he studied birds his whole life. I can't remember the name of the book. I want to say it's The Evolution of Beauty, but it's about birds. And he has demonstrated that birds are very guided by beauty. And they therefore have consciousness because you know, beauty is a consciousness thing. You experience the beauty. So birds are guided by the conscious experience of beauty, so much so, there are several species that he's detailed, the males don't fly very well because what the females think is beautiful is a trick that they do with their wings, putting them behind their back and flapping them together to make a noise. That's what really gets the females going. But in order to do that, their wings are a little stubby. And so they don't fly as well as, and he has fossils from uh, the same, the species preceding this one, that their wings were better. They flew better. So they have over evolutionary time become worse flyers because that's how you have sex. That's how you. Sexual selection, yeah. Yeah, it's sexual selection. That's precisely right. And it's. it's driving bird evolution. I mean, think of, here's a simple example. Think of the peacock. That tail is a serious liability. Yeah. You know, if you're a fox hunting for peacocks, you find this 20-foot tail going by, just put your paw on it, mm-hmm. and you've got dinner. Uh, it's just, you know, it's a serious liability. So, uh, but why is it there? Because the females like it. And if you don't impress the females, the species go extinct. Yeah. I mean, as long as, as long as you have sex once or twice before the fox eats you, you're in. <laughs> and so sexual selection drives a huge quantity of bird selection. And, and you know, it's, a, it's a, almost a taboo topic everywhere else. But probably sexual selection is a big deal amongst humans, too. And we're just, you know, it's a, it's a research project waiting to be studied. So if that's right, aesthetics guides basically everything, not just humans, but birds, cows, elephants, lizards, whales, octopus, everything, cockroaches. Everybody's about the beauty, everything. So that's usually about as good as I can do with my students and hope they see it. I always hope that 
they see that it's beautiful. The only, the only, the, the, all, all I'm doing is pulling back a cover that they have just been experiencing most of their lives is this cover. And I'll, if I pull it back, they'll see the beauty. It's like someone who's never heard Mozart. Right. You play it for them and they go, oh, I never heard that before. But it's beautiful. You go, okay, my work here is done. <laughs> but of course, you know, there are plenty of cases where you pull back the curtain and they go, yeah, <laughs> what is that? So people are going to have different aesthetic tastes, even for the scientific mysteries. But my hope is that we can kind of cultivate uh, an aesthetic appreciation for the scientific mysteries, mysteries, much in a way that one cultivates an appreciation for for jazz or or classical music. Right. Yeah, some of this is just kind of saying it's okay to be impressed by the beauty. Yeah. You know, a lot of times with students, I only have to say, I find this beautiful. And they go, you can see a light. And once in a while, a light will turn on in a student and go, oh, I now have permission to think it's beautiful mm-hmm. too. I'm So putting this in the context we were talking about earlier, it is very upsetting that so many scientists are staring right at that. I don't have to pull back the curtain for them. I go, isn't that beautiful? And they go, no. It's it's interesting, and here's how it works, but no, it's not beautiful. I go, how can you think it's not beautiful? How can infinity just be a thing to you? You know, How can consciousness just be a problem to you? How could you miss the beauty of these things? So our least aesthetic members are the scientists. Yeah. You know, except, of course, for Plum, who's busy studying the evolution of beauty at Yale. So... Yeah, hats off to him. Yeah, I think the Enlightenment took the humanities out of them, and that's why the Romantic movement and its emphasis on aesthetics was a response to the Enlightenment. Yes, The Romantic, and of course, we're not in the Romantic movement at all anymore, (laughs) unfortunately. But yeah, the Romantic poets, for example, gosh, that stuff, it really was beautiful. Yeah. So the pre-Raphaelite artists, yeah, all that stuff was great. Mm. Well... So that about wraps it up. Well, the uh, the philosopher is Eric Dietrich. The book is Excellent Beauty. Eric, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you for the invitation. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. We'd like to thank Jamie Willard for providing background music. You can find more of his music on YouTube. We'd also like to thank Adam Schultz for the Pineal Express logo. If you like Pineal Express, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash pinealexpress and consider pledging your support in exchange for patron rewards, including extra show episodes and content. If you can't pledge your support, please consider giving us a positive rating and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Special thanks to our patrons at the Conscious Conductor level of support. Patrons like you, Tara Lee, Harris Hajiabdij, and Megan Ryan helped to keep Pineal Express running.